I'm Kieran Murray. You're all very welcome to this evening's event. We begin the first of the three events about Dublin and the Great War. And this evening we're going to look at anti-conscription in Dublin and the impact of the Russian Revolution. We also have a selection of songs from the era, from the wonderful Fergus Russell from Angolian Singers. We're joined by Parry Yates, journalist, writer and trade union activist a distinguished social and labour historian and the author of many books from the era. But we begin this evening with John Dorney. John is a writer and historian and also chief editor of the Irish Story website. He's lots of research and publications about the period of Dublin 100 years ago and he has a book coming out soon which we'll hear more of in due course. But before that uh, we're going to go to Fergus Russell for a song and I think this one is Hand Me Down Me Petticoats. So. I'll give you Fergus Russell. How you doing? Um, this is a Dublin song. It's about a husband that enlists in the Dublin Fusiliers. It reflects none of the sentimentality of common rural ballads that wax lyrical on the romantic reunion of lovers separated by war. This song reflects the more realistic situation where a husband enlists after he's had a row with the wife and he wants to escape from the reality of domestic strife and the daily grind. In the song it mentions the Linen Hall. The Linen Hall is just off Bolton Street there. And that was where the wives of British servicemen would collect their allowances and their pensions. It was not unknown for a man to enlist under a false name so that in the event of his death, his wife would be denied the comfort of a pension. Right, so it goes something like this. Oh, hand me down me petticoat, hand me down me shawl, hand me down me button boots, I'm off to the linen hall. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the digger know that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. Oh, me love has joined the army, all under a false name. To do me out of the pension, it's his old one's all to blame. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the digger out that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. If you go down to the Curra camp, calling at the number nine, you'll see three squandies standing there, well, the good-looking one is mine. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the digger out that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. You. Oh, if you go to the fighting line, off to fight the bower, keep them doubling boys behind, let the culties go before. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the nigga know that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. Me love has crossed the ocean, me love has crossed the sea, he's fecked off to America, left me in the family way. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the nigga know that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. Oh, hand me down me petticoat, hand me down me shawl, hand me down me button boots, I'm off to the linen hall. Yeah, he was a queer one, for the nigga know that, he was a queer one, I'll tell you. Thank you. Gormil Margot, Fergus, it was a smashing rendition of that song. Yeah, John, um, the whole anti-conscription, anti-recruitment, the whole thing, maybe just to start a bit about what was recruitment like at the beginning of the First World War, to take us back a couple of years. Yeah, so... When we're talking about this whole period, we just have to keep a couple of figures in mind. So from all of Ireland, you have 200,000-odd servicemen who served in the war. And from Dublin City alone, it's about 30,000. So you're talking about very big numbers. Why did they join up? There's lots of reasons. One reason is because there was a very considerable number of Irishmen already in the British forces. There was also a very large number of reservists, and they had to come back. But during the war, you have at least 150,000 who join up during the war, you know, which are including reservists, I think, but that's, that's a huge number. Why do they join up? There's lots of reasons. One reason is the intense campaign of propaganda at the start of the war. And the British government's propaganda in, in Ireland is very tailored towards Ireland. Like this, the, the posters say, fight for Ireland. They don't say, you know, fight for the empire. They say, fight for little Belgium. And people will remember John Redmond, who's the leader of the biggest political party, really the only political party in the south of Ireland at the time. 
he supports the war. He tells people it's their duty to fight for Ireland and to support the war effort, you know, and afterwards we'll get home rule from the British. But also because he says the Germans are oppressing Catholic country, little Belgium, little Belgium like Ireland. And we know now that this was not a complete lie, as people thought in later years, the, the Germans did do did commit atrocities in Belgium. Some people were motivated by that, like Tom Kettle, who was a kind of intellectual in the Irish Parliamentary Party. But a lot of people joined up for adventure, you know, because their mates were doing it. A lot of the posters, uh, the recruitment posters, we have some of them here, they talk about manhood. Are you man enough to fight? Are you man enough to protect your women? The Germans are coming for your women. They actually said this. I couldn't make it up. And there's also a sense of kind of camaraderie. You have the phenomenon at the start of the war of PALS battalions. And what this is... Literally, pals, friends would all join up together, whether they be from a working class background, they join up from a factory, from a football team, but also from a middle class background. There's lawyers' battalions, you know, there's a rugby football battalion. The lawyers' battalion, I think, were known as the Toughs in the Toughs. They joined the Dublin Fusiliers. Dublin Fusiliers are known as the Toughs. And John, did they actually have a choice about what division they joined and what regiment did they? Could you decide, I want to go with all my pals? Yes, yeah, and they made special dispensation at the start of the war to encourage people to join up because the British didn't want to impose conscription. It wasn't part of the British tradition. So neither in Britain nor Ireland at the start was there conscription. That comes in later on. And then when did they start to resist and and why did that start to happen? Well, in Ireland, there's people who were against the war from the very start. So, you know, before the war in Ireland, we have this big crisis over home rule. You've got the volunteers, which is a big militia, most of whom support the war at the start, but some of whom... The Irish Republican Brotherhood say at the very start, they say, to hell with your war, you know, the, to hell with Britain, to hell with the British Empire. The volunteers are supposed to fight for Ireland. They're not supposed to fight for Britain. So at the very start, you know, there's the, what they call themselves at the time as separatists. We call them Republicans today. They're against the war. You have the feminist movement, which is another one of these kind of rising movements that were looking for the vote for women, the women's suffrage movement. And they have a, another famous headline, or famous, you know, people who've, who've studied that period, which is... They have a picture of Redmond, who's the nationalist leader, and Carson, who's the unionist leader, and they have, damn your war. And it's, women shouldn't participate in the war while women don't have the vote, is the message. You have a pacifist element. It's not very strong in Ireland, you know, regrettably, maybe. The most famous advocate is Francis Sheehy Skeffington, who is a kind of nationalist, but he's also a pacifist. And you also have, uh, you know, the socialist movement, which is, as it so happens in Ireland, is very tied up with the, with the nationalist movement, notably in the person of James Connolly. And James Connolly writes articles at the start of the war saying, you know, the, the workers in different countries will never fight against each other. And then when it becomes apparent that the socialists in, in France and Germany aren't going to stop the war, you know, he, his, his tone kind of gets more bitter. And at the start of the war, Connolly is saying nobody should support the imperialist war on either side. But as the war goes on, as Connolly gets more involved with the, the radical nationalists, the, the Republicans, he starts to become more kind of pro-German. He starts to talk about how it might be better if the Germans won the war kind of thing. So... There's an anti-war kind of movement, but there's also kind of an anti-British movement in, in Ireland, in Dublin. And when the volunteers split and someone went with Redmond and they were off to the war, they went, was that a big majority of people at that stage? It's a big majority of the volunteers, yeah. I mean, if, like, the volunteer movement is about, you know, it's over 100,000 strong and about 15,000 go with the anti-war volunteers. So, you know, you're looking at 90% support Redmond. But... One misconception people have is people think they all went off to the war. They didn't. You know, maybe one in four of them went off to the war. Most of them, you know, they didn't want to. But, like, at the start, you've got recruitment rallies. And at the start, Redmond carries the day. The British carry the day. There are these big recruitment rallies in Dublin and around the country. And the anti-recruitment people are, you know, the volunteers that come in the man. They're, you know, James Connolly, some people from the transport union. But they're the minority at the start. It starts to change probably in 1915 because, you know, the first mass casualties of Irish troops happens at, at Gallipoli where thousands of Irish troops are, are killed. They're slaughtered, coming out of the beaches for the most part. Another thing that happens is it becomes apparent the war isn't going to be over quickly. You know, it's not won't be a quick adventure and you'll be home. You might be away for years. The, another thing that happens in 1915 that isn't mentioned that often, but the Catholic Church turns against the war in 1915. Now, not just the Catholic Church in Ireland, but the Catholic, the Pope says that the war is wrong in 1915. So this obviously has a big effect in Ireland at the time. And also you start to hear statements from the more nationalist bishops like Edmund Dwyer of Limerick has this statement where a lot of Irishmen are in Liverpool and they're trying to emigrate to America, possibly to avoid being drafted. And Edmund Dwyer says, those men are arrested in Liverpool and they're sent back to Ireland. And Edmund Dwyer says, why should they fight for England? What has England ever done for them? So you start to hear this kind of sentiment more. But the big watershed is probably, it's, it's the Easter Rising in 1916 where you have the British army kind of bombarding Dublin, so it forces people to choose sides. But it's also, you know, it's the mass slaughter on the Somme, it's the hardship the war is, is imposing on people. So Pork has done a lot of research on this. 
it's the, the fact that Home Rule has still not transpired. So the idea was support for the war in return for Home Rule. That doesn't happen. All these things start to, start to come together, the casualties, the hardship, the political crisis, and the emergence of this kind of radical new nationalist movement after the rising, after the executions and everything that happens then. So by the end of the war, by the time the British are thinking about imposing conscription in Ireland in 1918, the war is now very unpopular. It's, it's quite a different situation than at the start. So when is there evidence from soldiers' letters or after the Somme, after that kind of slaughter, maybe even to bring Porrig in, was there a, a sense from those long lists of names of soldiers who died published in newspapers? Did that have an effect? Yeah, as John was saying, I mean, Gallipoli was the beginning of the end. Uh, that was when the telegrams started coming through people's doors saying, your son or your brother is dead. And it was signed by Kitchener. People, Some people sadly thought actually Field Marshal Kitchener had sat down himself and written each one, but he hadn't, of course. So, yeah, no, that was a big factor. So uh, from then on, it it was extremely difficult to, as as John says, uh, the war dragged on and on. There was no sign of any breakthrough, any end to the war. I think in Dublin, any initial reaction in in support of the war was largely from the middle and upper classes, as it was in Britain. I mean, the first of all was a peculiar war. Normally, wars are fought by the people who can't get out of it, who tend to be lower-income groups. But in the First World War, in the initial enthusiasm, more lawyers and doctors and whatever joined than workers. And in, in Dublin, that was the case as well when it came to volunteers. But as John said, huge numbers of reservists in Dublin who had served in the British Army, never thinking they'd have to fight in the war because it was a peacetime army, and had come back, uh, were working, many of them in jobs, were getting their money as reservists, seven shillings a week, a huge amount of money if you're a casual labourer, and suddenly you get your mobilisation papers and you have to go back. So, John, can I, I bring you in there again? Yeah, another thing I just wanted to tie in with what Porrick is saying is there's this phase at the start of the war where lawyers and, stu- and you know, doctors and stuff are joining up, but that doesn't last. You know, that's quite a passing phase. And after that, what the British Army says they're doing in Ireland, and they probably are doing in Britain as well, is they're looking for the unskilled working class. If you tot up all the figures between the pay and the separation allowance that their family will get, they'll be better off. And this is the way the, the British Army sells it to them. And what the British Army started to say by 1915 is, we've used up all these people. You know, we've, li- we've literally used up all the, the people who are going to join for those reasons. And, you know... We can't get any more from like, economic recruitment. So that, that, that's another thing that, that kind of run out of. It's a resource they run out of during the war. Yeah, I think you mentioned Tom Kettle there earlier. <coughs> he was a, a local man from Artane. When people like that joined up and we were talking about the divisions that they had a choice of where would they go and stuff, was there any of the southern Dublin Protestants who would have chosen to go with the Ulster divisions? Would have been more loyal as a thing to well, do? Well, if you join the army, uh, if, you, if you could read and write, there was a help. If you had a degree, I mean, you could walk into a job as a commissioned officer. So you would have, um, that's where family connections come in. And if, say, like the Lee family, they had a friend who was a colonel in, I can't remember the regiment now off the top of my head, but all the sons got commissions in his regiment. So family connections count for a lot. So the regiment you linked up with would depend on those sort of things. They would tend to be Irish, not always, invariably, but they would tend to be Irish. They wouldn't necessarily have to be, if you like, unionist or northern-based, but they're who you know. It's the old thing in Ireland, it's who you know. And if you know someone who can give you a commission in one regiment, that's where you go. Now, that's not to deny that there were people like the Toffs and the Toffs who joined as groups, and they were men who actually forewent the chance to have commissioned some of them in order to serve together. John, we were talking about families and how families would have split and some would have Mm. seen themselves as being particularly loyal to the Crown or loyal to Ireland and off they went. You mentioned the O'Malley's and Daltons. Tell us a bit about those stories. Yeah, so the O'Malley's and the Daltons are really interesting because of two different generations of brothers who are separated by a few years go totally different directions. So Ernie O'Malley's family live here in the north side. They went to O'Connell schools and so did the Dalton family. They knew each other as children. And Frank Malley, actually, the O'Malley comes from when Ernie O'Malley was an IRA leader. He added the O. But Frank Malley joins the Royal African Rifles, I think is the unit, in 1914, you know, for king and country. And he dies in East Africa. He, He dies of disease in the East African campaign. And Ernie O'Malley writes in his memoir later on, I would have joined too. You know, no problem. Had I been of age, but I wasn't. You know, he w- he was like 16 in 1914. 
Ernie O'Malley's a medical student in Dublin, in UCD, which is in Earlsford Terrace at the time. On Easter Monday, 1916, he's walking around Dublin and he comes across the GPO and some people are sticking up posters and it's the proclamation of the Irish Republic. He knows some people are in the volunteers, he experiences the rising and the rising really changes his whole view. He helps the volunteers during the rising, he digs out an old rifle and starts shooting at the British Army actually, helps people to get away. Afterwards he joins the volunteers himself, he becomes this legendary guerrilla leader and several of his brothers do as well. One of his brothers is killed in the, in the Civil War. But wh- what's the difference between Frank Malley and Ernie O'Malley? Nothing, two years. You know, it shows people get caught up in the times they live in. Now, the Dalton family, similarly, the Dalton family is, was a nationalist family. They're involved with the parliamentary party. They had lived in America. Emmett Dalton, the older brother, is very influenced by Tom Kettle, who you mentioned. Tom Kettle is his, his mentor in the Irish parliamentary party. He joins up, he rises to the rank of major in the British Army. Later on, he, he comes back to Ireland. But at the time, he rises to become a British Army officer. His brother, Charlie Dalton, who is, I think, 14 when the, yeah, 14 when the war breaks out, Charlie Dalton gets involved after the Rising with the volunteers, with the IRA, later on becomes a, a runner for Michael Collins, and late, later still becomes an intelligence officer for Michael Collins in the IRA. So Emmett Dalton actually joined the IRA as well after he came back to Ireland. But I guess what the point I'm making is within the two families, you know, you've got people separated by two years who make totally different decisions. So if you happen to be the older brother... You went out to fight for the British Army, and if you were a few years younger, the world had changed. Yeah. So you went out to fight for somebody else. To fight for Ireland, when, as they saw it, yeah. When then, in terms of some of those changes, when the British were thinking about introducing conscription, was that then when people, when there was real rallies, when people actually came out in the street and protested? Is that how it happened? Yeah, basically, yes. So... Easter Rising we commemorated last year and it's obviously the central event in Irish history and it is a really dramatic event and it does change a lot of people and it changes Irish history but in terms of the thousands and thousands of people getting involved it's not 1916 it's the anti-conscription campaign of April 1918 and what happens is the Germans launched their last big push in that month in April 1918 and the British say well you know we've kind of had our, held our hands off Ireland because of all the political problems up until now but now we need the manpower and they pass in Westminster conscription passes so the people who did the Easter Rising have been let out of prison and by and large it's them who lead the anti-conscription campaign. And in Dublin up until now there was a constituency of people who supported the war and they weren't all unionists like they were what the separatists called the separation women and they were the, basically the women folk of, of men who joined the army. They were violently hostile in the Rising. In the Rising, you know, you've talked what the rebels often call things like the rabble of the city. You know, they threw things at the volunteers, There's, they talk about them scratching their faces, you know, and so on. They called us filthy names, is, is what Robert Holland, for example, who's a volunteer from Inchicore, says. They're almost the majority in the city up until 1916. Conscription changes everything. So in conscription, you have the volunteers, Sinn Féin. You have the Catholic Church, which supports the rebels. The first time it ever does that. You have the volunteers, steward the meetings. The Irish Parliamentary Party has to follow Sinn Féin. And what's really interesting is they have the Trade Union Congress calls a general strike. So they bring the whole city, the whole country to a halt in April 14th, 1918. And there's a mass rally in the centre of Dublin. And the same women, or the same class of women, the slum women, where the separation women came from, they all line up and they sign a pledge saying, we'll never take the job of any man who's conscripted. And this is a massive thing because had the men been all taken off to war, factories were empty, the women have to take over, which is what happened in Britain. Law and the man, it's called the Day of Women. So this shows, like, it's a mass movement. You have hundreds of thousands of people marching. You've got a general strike. You've got the bishops, the Catholic bishops behind it. For me, like, if you had to choose a single moment where Irish history turns, where people move towards independence, it's 1918. It's anti-conscription rather than just the rising. We might just get a wrap-up on this section yeah. from, from John. Yeah, but there's, there's two things going on there. There's the separation payment coming in and there's the soldiers' wages coming back and so forth. But the other thing that's happened is there's this massive inflation during the war. Food is getting much more expensive, and food is being exported from Ireland. And the nationalists' movement makes a big thing out of this in 1917, 1918. And what they say is this is the same as 1847. It's the same as the year of the famine. And one of the things that they do, it's in Porrick's book, is where I learned this, so credit where it's due, is where the volunteers go down to the docks and they seize the food that's being exported, and they distribute it to the, to the people, you know, in the East Wall and areas like that. So all of these things c- contribute. Like, there's money coming in from the British Army, but other people are suffering you know so it's it's a complex situation there's there's and, different pressures and um, we'll come back to those themes again but um at this stage we'll go back to fergus for another song and i don't know which one this is fergus i'm going to sing uh where where is there james Connolly? just listen to the conversation there so when the lockout finished and her my grandmother's first husband went to uh look for his job back they wouldn't have him back his job was gone and he joined up the British Army 
1914, the outbreak of the war, for financial reasons. He hadn't no income and that he was forced economically to join up. And he died, he was one of the first uh, soldiers killed that went the, the, he, when he went off. He was in the the, the uh, Dublin Fusiliers, and when he went off, he was only there a few days. He got killed. First Battle of the Somme, I think he got killed. Right. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> that this song ties in the the two things: the the um, the the fight for Irish independence and the Great Lockout, because it's about James Connolly. Oh, where, oh, where is our James Connolly? Where, oh, where can that gallant man be? He has gone to organize the workers and strike a blow against slavery. And where, oh, where is the citizen army? Where, oh, where can that gallant band be? They have gone to join the great rebellion and strike a blow against tyranny. And who, oh, who does lead that band? Who, oh, who does lead that band? Who but our own James Connolly, the hero of the working clan. They carried him up to Kilmainham. They carried him up to the jail. And they shot him there on a bright May morning and laid him in a quicklime grave who mourns the death of our James Connolly, who mourns the death of this great man. Oh, lay me down in yon green garden. Let my bearers all be union men. We laid him down in yon green garden with the union members on every side and we swore we would build a mighty union and remember James Conley's name with pride. Oh, where, oh, where is our James Connolly? Where, oh, where can that gallant man be? He has gone to organize the workers and strike a blow for liberty. Yeah, I'm off for vision or else are fud. That was an excellent rendition of that of that song as well. So hardly a year had passed, I suppose, after Connolly's uh, execution and the Russian Revolution took place. So perhaps, Pori, the first kind of question is, what did the Russian Revolution mean to the Citizen Army and perhaps even to people like Larkin? Well, Larkin was in the States at that stage, but became heavily involved in what became the communist movement. The Citizen Army survived. Unfortunately, it didn't play a, a very prominent role in what was coming, although... Ironically enough, at the Connolly Memorial, 
concert that they, they organised. There were clashes with the DMP and the first DMP man was shot. He wasn't wounded by gunfire. But I think Collins saw that as a sign when there was no great public reaction against it that you know he could start using violent means to intimidate the DMP or at least the G Division the, if you like the special branch of the DMP and just the DMP where the Dublin, the Dublin Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police, Police so um, rather than who, being yeah, seen who as were not generally armed but they were armed briefly uh, for a period early in the War of Independence but I mean the Russian Revolution was it was, a, it was the single most important thing to come out of the First World War it was important because you've got to remember that the only other time when power had been seized by working-class people or people who claimed to represent working-class people was in the Paris Commune of 1871, which hadn't lasted very long and didn't extend, by definition, much outside Paris. So for a whole country claiming to be socialists to seize power and to hold power in one country, and that country the largest country in the world, and it still is the largest country in the world, at that time, population-wise, it, it accounted for a far larger proportion of the population it does now, for that to happen was bound to have a seismic effect on everybody, from the top to the bottom, from the right. capitalist class to workers and peasants. As uh, maybe to, as to give us a picture of the era, did it make news headlines? Was it what was it what the newspapers were talking about? Was it what was talked about in the pulpit? Did were the church concerned? It, well, everybody was concerned because. We were in the, already in the era of mass communication. People in London or New York would know within a day what had happened in Petrograd, as St. Petersburg was called then, or what happened in Moscow. So people knew what was happening. You've got to remember the revolution came in two phases. The first one was in February. You've got to remember they used the Julian calendar, so they were two weeks behind the West, if you like, so everything that happened, the February Revolution actually happened in March, by our count, and the October Revolution happened in November, just to make life difficult for people. When did it start? Some people argue it started with the mass demonstration by Putilov workers. The working class in Russia was probably proportionately smaller even than it was in Ireland. It was pretty tiny in Ireland. But the difference was it was concentrated in huge industrial plants. The Putilov factory employed tens of thousands of people. I remember when I worked in Birmingham, you go into Longbridge or Rover in Birmingham when they knocked off, and it was like the rush hour. I mean, tens of thousands of people came out of those factory gates. There were traffic lights inside the factories because you had to have them to control traffic. You know, so many, it was so busy. So you're talking about those sort of factories that didn't exist in Dublin. And we had them to some extent, the shipyards in Belfast, but that was the only place. In Russia, had tens of thousands of people in them. So these were many of them first generation. They come off the land. They knew nothing but poverty and exploitation. And they were resentful at the war, which was being waged by a government that was not only autocratic, but totally incompetent. All the senior grades in the armed forces and in the civil service were aristocrats. You could not become a senior civil servant or army officer unless you were of noble birth. So, you know, a lot of the people were promoted way above their levels of competence. So there was burning resentment at this. Soldiers were being sent to the front without rifles. They were told to pick up the one that the guy has in front if he dies. Starvation, the, the railway system was breaking down. People were starving. The Pudilov workers came out and protested conditions on uh, March the 7th. And on March the 8th, International Women's Day, the women in Petrograd came out to mark International Women's Day, but also to demand bread. They were starving. Their families were starving. And that was really the beginning of the revolution because the Tsar, as was his wont, ordered the military garrison out to disperse them. And the troops refused to go. They, they were so demoralized. They said, no, what's the point? Same thing happened in the... Uh, 10 years earlier in the Russo-Japanese war, but this time it was much more widespread. They refused to go out. The last barrier of defence for the regime were the Cossacks. The Cossacks wouldn't go out. And once that spread, within a week, the Tsar had resigned. His brother was asked would he take on the job, and he said no, and he left the country. But the other big thing is that they owed a fortune to the banks, not their own banks, but this is a very familiar story in this country, to foreign banks. So the French in particular had been very foolish and had lent loads and loads of money to the Russians to kill Germans. And the Russians hadn't been very good at killing Germans, but they had been very good at spending the money. So they'd lost all this money, and now the banks were going to come looking for it back. So their only hope of retrieving that situation, and again, this may sound familiar, is we have to beat the Germans, because if we beat the Germans, we can make them pay our debts to all the banks that we owe around the world. So 
they had a big vested interest in this. And if you pull the plug on the bondholders, as you know, terrible things can happen to you. So the provisional government were trying to keep in the war, you know, to the end and win. The Bolsheviks gained strength as the most extreme or the most left-wing group amongst the workers on the basis of uh, peace, land and bread. We're not interested in the banks. We want peace. We'll give the peasants the land, which belongs to the aristocracy, but they don't deserve it. The peasants work the land, so they should have it. And bread, everybody needs bread. So it was on that basis, a very simple basis, really, that the Bolsheviks got to power because they were the only people who insisted we have to have peace. Everybody else was trying to chop and change the the salami sandwich with their own slice in it to say we we can deliver. The Bolsheviks had a very simple message. And eventually they got control of some of the key Soviets in the big cities. Not in the countryside, but in the big cities. Once they had that, once they had Moscow and Petrograd in particular, they set up a military council. The military council picked a date, November the 7th, to seize power. And that's precisely what they did. And the rest, as they say, is history. So you have this sudden seizure of power by a working class movement in Russia. Never happened anywhere else in the world before. Nobody thought it could happen. But the ruling class was now the working class. And Parik, if I can bring you back to Dublin then, how was that greeted? Was there shock? Were people celebrating? Which way did they go? Well, people reacted here, I suppose, the way they did everywhere. If you were upper class, uh, you were very alarmed. If you are working class, you were elated to some extent. So there was a big rally held in, I think it was May 1918. I, I got a couple of quotes, sorry, 9th of February 1918, by which time everybody knew that the Soviet government was going to last at least a while. Huge rally in the Mansion House. And, I, and some of the people who spoke at it, it's quite interesting. One was Bill O'Brien, who was a, a great friend of James Connolly. He was Connolly's literary edit, uh, executor. And he told the crowd that the October Revolution, as it was still being called, was the most complete political and economic freedom the world has yet seen. And Cahill O'Shannon, who was another member of the Transport Union, actually proposed the motion that the people of Dublin are at one with the Bolsheviks and the Russian interpretation of a democratic principle is the only one that will be acceptable to the people of Ireland. And the third speaker I just want to quote is Tom Johnson, a former president of the ITUC, who was later leader of the Labour Party in the Free State Doll, and he said, uh, he, he asked the crowd if it was ready to follow the action of the Russian revolutionaries and do the whole job at once, and he said yes, yes. I think one voice apparently shouted <coughs> no, but according to reports, but everybody else said no. Uh, yes, Countess Markovich spoke at it, Morgan spoke at it. It was a sort of who's who of the radical Republican left. The only person who spoke at it who sounded an order of caution was Kathleen Lynn, the doctor, uh, who'd been in charge in City Hall in the Citizen Army, chief medical officer, and she said, well, maybe we should think a bit harder about this because we don't want to be accused of being anti-Catholic. Now, Kathleen Lynn was a Protestant, but maybe that made her more sensitive to this. But that was a problem because after the revolution, I mean, if you think the Catholic Church at the time was bad, uh, it was nothing compared with the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church actually stopped the government from introducing free primary education. They said, we will educate people and we'll tell them what they need to know and don't be bothering us. And the Tsar told uh, Iman Stalipin, the minister responsible, to go away and stop annoying the, the clergy. Stalipin also got into trouble for trying to introduce exams for promotion in the Navy. And Parik, why, why do you so, think so people were so positive, um, even the likes of Maud gone? Why was there such a positive be, greeting be, of that? Be, because we were trying to overthrow the British, and including the ruling class, um, so the Russians would, had done it and they'd achieved this. They wanted peace. They were outsiders like we were, or at least we thought they were. But the thing is that also we, we thought it might bring the war to an end. Uh, ironically, as John has mentioned, the Russian Revolution actually had the reverse effect because once they stopped fighting the Germans, the Germans were able to transfer thousands of men to the Western Front in one last heave to win the war. So, and so that's what yeah, happened. Maybe to bring in yeah, John sure. there, do you think did it embolden the... Socialist and the left in Ireland in their anti-British army campaigns. Yeah, I think absolutely it did. I mean, the only thing that I'll say is that the high point of of anti-war resistance in Ireland is it's it's a very kind of a local thing. I mean, it's about anti-conscription in Ireland. But on the other hand, what's hap- what happens in Ireland is in large part the war undermines people's confidence in the state. Now, there's other problems, you know, because there's a nationalist movement and stuff. But a lot, a very large part of the problem is, you know, the ruling class, if you like, across Europe, including in Ireland, sells this thing of the war is going to be short and sharp and it's going to be fought for democracy. That's the way it's sold, certainly in Western Europe. 
And it's not. You know, that's not the way it is. And also, the, you know, the war, even the countries that win the war, like they lose millions of, or hundreds of thousands, and in some cases millions of, of young men, the war undermines states all across Europe. So what happens in Ireland and what happens in Russia are parallel. And what happens in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I mean, all these countries we think of today, like today's Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia emerged at the end of the war, Yugoslavia, which is gone now, but that emerged at the end of the war, Ukraine, which briefly appeared and then disappeared, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, they appeared at the end of the war. All of these countries have nationalist revolutions, basically, as well. I mean, it's all part of the one process where the war undermines the existing regimes because people say, how can we give loyalty you know, to a state which has brought about this disaster. So if there was general support for the Russian Revolution, was there mimicry? Was there Soviet setup? Well, as John said, there's a problem. Uh, it affected nationalists and socialists. At the beginning of the First World War, for over 10 years beforehand, socialists in Europe had been f- discussing how to stop a war. Ever since the Boer War, and particularly the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 5, they were saying, how can we stop a w- another war amongst the great powers? Because everyone knew it was going to be an industrialised conflict. Millions were going to die. So every conference they had, they had them every two years, came discussed the same issue. Some people said, well, we can stop it by having a general strike. If we all go on strike, we refuse to go report to the army because conscription in most countries won't run the railways or operate the munitions factories. They can't have a war. Other socialists argued, well, we can vote, and which they could do in some countries, like Belgium and France. We can vote, have a big enough block of votes to stop war credits being approved to the government. If the government don't get money to spend on a war, they can't have one. And other people were arguing that we will just refuse to to move. And the problem was was Germany. Germany had the biggest socialist party, the most developed socialist party. Their problem wasn't with the French or the British or the Belgians or the Italians or anybody else. It was with the Russians because it was possible, it was conceivable rather than possible, that if war broke out between Germany and France, for example, or with Belgium, that the socialist organisations in those countries could actually have a mass disobedience, civil disobedience campaign, and it might work. The trouble was Russia. There was a very small working class in Russia. At that stage, the socialist movements, uh, the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, the social revolutionaries, the Bund, all these groups were quite small. The mass of the population were peasants. And if the Tsar called them up, they would march. And again, I just quote a, a quote here when they were debating this. In the first week of the war, just before the war broke out, there were hectic meetings among socialist parties. They were catching trains, they were driving in cars between capitals trying to sort this out. And there was an interesting meeting in Germany with the Belgians, with Van der Velt and Gwesdrething from the French. And at that meeting, Friedrich Stamfer, who was the editor of Vorts, the, the socialist party paper, said, we will not have our... Told them bluntly when they said, you must call a general strike. If we do one, if we call a general strike, will you call one? And he said, we will not have our women and children sacrificed to the brutality of the Cossacks. Because they said, we go on general strike, what's going to happen? The Russians are going to roll in, and the rest will be history. Uh, and it's true in the sense that when the Russians got into East Prussia, they certainly gave a demonstration of what they could do in terms of murder and pillage and rapine and all the worst excesses of war in the in the few weeks they were there. So if you were a German, it wasn't an academic question, workers of the world. There were no workers in Russia, or they weren't organised enough to, to do anything. So when the Russian Revolution happened, by then all of these parties were fairly locked into supporting their own governments. So what do you do then? How do you extract yourself from that situation? And instead of doing that they actually went on the defensive and said, no, we supported the war this far, we have to follow it through. If we're going to get any gains for workers at the other end of it, we'll only get them if we win, if the government wins and we get our just rewards. So there was resistance within the wider, if you like, social democratic movement to what was happening in Russia. And they said, and with some reason, you can't have a socialist revolution in Russia. And in fairness to Lenin, he said afterwards to justify what happened afterwards, when we started it, we didn't think we were going to last a week. He said one or two things was going to happen. Either the revolution spreads across Europe, as Connolly had hoped, when he said the same thing but way back in 1914, and we have a revolution that spreads right across Europe, and the working class assume power right across Europe, or we're wiped out. They, it didn't spread, and they weren't wiped out. They were left holding the baby a revolution in a country that wasn't ready for socialism. Maybe just to bring it back to finish this section, Parig, what's this story about Conrad Peterson and the Letich rifles? What, how does that fit into the whole thing? 
Again, this peculiar period, um, he apparently took part in the... He was a Latvian, hence the Lettish thing. I don't know if he was ever in the Lettish rifles because I don't think he went back to Latvia at that stage. He left uh, Russia or the Russian Empire after taking part in the early 1904-1905 uprising. He managed to escape, ended up in Ireland through family connections and worked in Ireland. And in that, he was still here in 1918 when he actually spoke at that meeting in the Mansion House on behalf of the Soviet government and he said that he was a, or at least he was, I don't know if he said it in fairness to him he was described as a captain in the Lettish Rifles but I say I don't know how he became a captain in the Lettish Rifles if he wasn't in Latvia and there's no evidence that he was in the Lettish Rifles but uh, he was one of these people another one who was a former industrialist who represented the Soviet government in, in America and who negotiated the agreement with with uh, Pat McCartan, who was a, a TD, Dr. Pat McCartan, who was a TD, not the recently, the, well, the former TD for this area, who's a friend of mine, but he, he represented the Irish government with the Russians in America and actually went in Mo- to Moscow in 1921 to try and nail down an agreement with them and, and, and failed for reasons we don't have time to go into now. But the, it was a very peculiar period when people were found themselves in a particular place got certain jobs, which would never have happened otherwise. Yeah. And, and Peterson did go back to Latvia. Uh, he was very successful there. Eventually, he came back to Ireland uh, as well and uh, worked here with Bordnemona, I think. The Irish-Soviet agreement never came about because the Russians and the British patched up their differences by 1921, and they signed an Anglo-Soviet trade agreement. <coughs> and there was no way the Russians were going to sacrifice an Anglo-Soviet trade agreement for an obscure uh, outpost of the British Empire uh, on this side of the Irish Sea. So it died to death because well, the bigger, bigger players reached uh, accommodations. We don't tend to think of the Latvians as, being, as playing a major influence here 100 years ago. I'm sure there's a lot more in Dublin today than there was then. But maybe at this stage to uh, open up to see if there's any questions from the audience. I understand that um, thousands of people died of the of the Spanish flu. I think it was called after First World War. Would you like to? Would you care to comment on the impacts of that, please? Yeah, it was called the Spanish flu because uh, one of the people who got it was the Span- King of Spain. But it was actually kept under wraps because of censorship. We don't know for certain where it originated, but it, it was first reported in a very public way in in Sweden. But it was decimating uh, the troops in the Western Front. It probably developed in the trenches because it, it targeted the young and, and fit uh, people in their 20s and 30s the, rather than the old and the, and, and the very young. But there was a period in February 1919 when the death rate in Dublin was so high it exceeded the birth rate. The population of a city was actually falling. It was a very brief period, but the city was totally unprepared for it. Charles Cameron, uh, Dr. Cameron, who has gotten a bad press uh, for various reasons, but in fairness to him, he was a very old man at that stage, uh, he insisted on spending money disinfecting trams, disinfecting theatres, because he believed if we can do that, we can contain it. And he was right, but he was still uh, censored by the councillors for wasting the ratepayers' money uh, on this ridiculous uh, sort of carry-on. But we had no real concept of how to do it. Kathleen Lynn, uh, who at the time had been arrested by the British for subversive activities, Cameron was one of the people who interceded on her behalf and said, you have to let this woman out because she's one of the best GPs in the city and we need her. And the British let her out for that reason. Like One of the interesting things about this is how it intersects like with the, the national struggle because Kathleen Lynn is, you know, she's a... A separatist. I don't think she's not actually a member of Coming to Man at that point, but she sets up a fever hospital in the north inner city. And this is one of the many things that the volunteers are doing, whether it's seizing food or setting up hospitals to help the poor of Dublin. But I mean, they, we think the death toll from the Spanish flu in Ireland alone is about 20,000, you know, over about a six month period, you know, late 1918 and early 1919. And interestingly enough, what a lot of the p- people who were campaigning for Sinn Fein in the election of 1918 and who were locked up some, subsequently is they were terrified to be in jail because they were terrified they got the Spanish flu. And a lot of them were in jail in, in Ballykindler in the north. And they said that the British authorities were actually terrified we'd get the flu and we'd all die, and that they'd be blamed for it. And what one of them says in his, in his statement to later on to the Bureau of Military History is, the warders passed around brandy to kill the Spanish flu. Whether that was effective, I don't know. But seriously, they got bottles of brandy every day to try to ward off the, the Spanish flu. But certainly also... It really struck me a few years ago when I was working through all the oral testimony about Sinn Féin activists was they all talk about the Spanish flu. 
and they talk about different things like um, in Tyrone, Kevin O'Shiel, who was the Sinn Féin man up there, says you know, it affected Catholics more than Protestants because Protest- Catholics went to Mass more and Protestants didn't observe it. You know, that's pure prejudice. But in Dublin, I mean, Kathleen Lynn, you know, who's an anti-recruitment person, she, she says oh, it's brought by the soldiers because of the filthy conditions in the British Army and what do you expect from that, that mob, you know? Everyone has their own explanation for how it arrives, but basically, like, troops coming back have it, you know, and it spreads like wildfire the way, same way it does everywhere else. But, I mean, it kills marginally fewer people than the First World War killed from Ireland, and certainly more than the subsequent wars in Ireland killed, you know. So, are there any other questions? You, you mentioned the the uh, activities of the Germans and vis-a-vis the working class in terms of a rising, but I thought the... Did they not export Lenin in a sealed train? It, it, it paid off for them. It unfortunately, wasn't quick enough. But, yeah, from their point of view, yeah, they did. They had a sealed train. He was in Geneva, and he wanted to get back. A lot of Russians had difficulty getting back. I mean, Trotsky had great difficulty getting back from America. I just re- I looked it up. It was bothering me. Ludwig Martens, whose family had all their property seized, a big industrialist. He was in America at the time working for an American company. He came back on the same boat as Trotsky, and then the Bolsheviks, because of his ex- business experience, sent him back to America to do deals with the Americans, and he linked up with McCartan then and negotiated a loan. The Sinn Féin government gave £40,000 to the Soviet government in return for some of the Russian crown jewels. It turned out the jewels were only worth about 20000 but, you know, you can't trust some people. But it was outcasts, you know, linking in with each other, you know, my enemy's enemy. But Dev was very careful. Dev never sanctioned an agreement with the Russian government, because like Kathleen Lynn, he knew if they did, the Catholic Church would jump on them, and the Catholic Church were essential to Sinn Féin in the War of Independence, whether it was a marriage of convenience, but they needed each other. Do we have other questions? A quick question. Um, Is there any evidence to suggest that the Irish Revolution influenced the the Russian Revolution one year later? Yeah, the, to a degree. I mean, Lenin, for example, like the Porik alluded to the fact that the moderate socialists supported the war, basically, but the radical socialists led by the likes of Lenin, you know, were against the war from the start, Rosa Luxemburg in Germany. And these people, the radical socialists, are, are divided on what to think about the Easter Rising. Like Rosa Luxemburg calls it a, a putsch, I think, which means, you know, a coup. But Lenin writes very praisingly, if that's a word. He, he writes very approvingly of it. And he, he writes it was led by it was led by a working class leader, James Connolly, and there was a workers' militia. And he, and he said... Before. before his own revolution, yeah. So... He might not be influenced by it, but Lenin certainly kind of approved of it. He admired it. Okay, we're going to um, go to Fergus for a final song. But just before we do, just to remind you, we'll be back next week and we'll be looking at suffragettes and women at work during the Great War. That's all for this evening. So, Mulebuichus, the Fergus and Parig and John. And thanks especially to the staff at Kulak Library and thanks to Donny, Dave, Gay, Lauren, Neve, and all the Near FM production team and Alex. And uh, and Sinead, Gurmagaf. So, Fergus, we'll leave it to you to say goodnight. There was a mention in the talk there of the red flag, and um, I'm going to sing the red flag. Um, it was written by an Irishman, Jim Connell, of Crossakill, County Meath, and in uh, 1989, we uh, there was a monument put into Crossakill to this man for the great uh, work he did in writing the song. The people's flag is deep, it's red, it shrouded off our martyr dead, and ere their limbs grew stiff and cold, their heart blood dyed its every fold, then raised the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die, the cowards flinch and traitors sneered, we'll keep the red flag flying here, look round the Frenchman loves its blaze, the sturdy German chants its praise. In Moscow's vaults, its hymns are sung, Chicago swells the surging throng. Then raise the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die. Though cowards finch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. It waved above. 
some fair infant might, when all ahead seemed dark as night, it witnessed many a deed and vow, we must not change its color now. Then raised the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die, though cowards flinch and traitors snared, we'll keep the red flank flying here. It well recalls the triumphs past, it gives the hope of peace at last, the banners bright, the symbols plain of human right and human gain. Then raise the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die, though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. It suits today the weak and base, whose minds are fixed on pelf and place, to cringe before the rich man's frown, and haul the sacred emblem down. Then raise the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die, though cowards flinch and traitors snare, we keep the red flag flying here. With heads uncovered, swear we all to bear it onward till we fall. Come dungeons dark and gallows grim, the song will be our parting hymn. Then raise the scarlet standard high, within its shade we live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneered, we'll keep the red flag fly. This program was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee.